Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome to another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Kirk, along with my co-host, Lucas Sullivan. What's up, man? Back at it. It's nice. Yes. And today we are going to be talking to one of Columbus's rising stars, especially in the legal circles. Sean Walton is here. Yeah, excited about this one. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Been looking forward to this since you contacted me, Lucas. Yeah, you know, the reason that uh, we have Sean in is there hasn't been anyone who's kind of been in the fire, I guess, of this national and especially and unfortunately at times conversation here in Columbus about the relationships between police, the black community, and also issues involving minority police officers and how they're operating in the Columbus Division of Police. And there's not many people that stick their neck out, I guess is the right way to say it. And so Sean is a interesting person to talk to just because his experiences there. So I'm excited about this. It's going to be quite a journey that I think our listeners will learn a lot from. So with that, Sean, first off, glad to see you're upright and alert. You and your wife just welcomed another baby girl into the world. So congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I have a two-year-old and a three-month-old now. Wow. So it's been a lot, you know, and uh, you guys, I know you've been there, Lucas. (laughs) Yes. And so in that regard, talking about kids, you know, when we're talking about police shootings, a lot of them involve underage. We're talking about kids. And I wonder, you know, is that part of the reason why you're, you know, you got involved in in this and wanted to, you know, hold police accountable or just can you just kind of talk about what brought you to this moment? Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in God. And so I believe God, first and foremost, has placed me here. I feel like my entire life has been a journey up until this point. And so um, it's not just my children. It's the fact that everyone I, I grew up with, you know, had interactions with the police. And so um, I'm, I'm from the inner city. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. Hey. <laughs> grew up in Dayton View, which uh, is really like Old Town East prior to the gentrification. And so, you know, to me, I've always been in, in urban areas where I've seen problematic interactions. And so growing up, I've had people who did not trust the police, did not like the police. And I feel like it's my role, you know, being a lawyer now at this point, being able to bridge the gap between uh, the communities. And so I've actually had some positive interactions with police officers and I've had negative interactions. I've actually had a situation where I was charged with a crime as a, as a juvenile. And it was because I felt like an officer escalated a situation where I was simply asking a question. And I ended up I was 16 years old at the time. I was actually in college because I started college early. And I ended up pleading out to a disorderly conduct. And a friend of mine actually fought the charge because he was charged as well. And the judge threw it out. And the judge said, said this is ridiculous. Pretty much chewed the officer out and said that there is no way that you should have charged these individuals with disorderly conduct. So I've actually been on the other side as well. You know, so all of that has come together to bring me to this point where my practice, I started practicing in personal injury litigation. And so many times that's just as simple as a car accident 
accident or a slip and fall, but it's, it's also wrongful death situations. And I started to get more calls about police shootings and, and police misconduct situations. And it was just a natural calling. And like I said, I feel like God had led me on a journey and gave me the experiences and the intellect to be able to bridge the gap and hopefully solve some of these issues regarding police community relations. Now, something you said is interesting to me. You said that your friend fought the charges back when you were 16. And this is what you had an exchange with an officer and he got irritated by the exchange and yes. and then just arrested both of you? Well, a bit further, actually. I was driving. We were leaving a club. It was our freshman year of college. And so we're leaving out and the officer is directing traffic. My dorm was to the left and he was directing people to the right. I wasn't clear that he was only saying, you know, go to the right. You can't turn left. And so I just simply asked. I said, hey, I live right there two buildings away. Can I turn left? But he said, uh, shut the hell up uh, before I pull your ass out of the car. And I said, hey, man, hold on. You know, like, can you show me some respect? And my window was down and he literally reached in. So I put the car in park and started to pull me out. So I opened the door. My friend was in the back seat. He reached out and said, hey, hey, you know, he didn't do anything. And the officer radioed and he said, assault on an officer, assault on an officer. Three more officers show up. They pepper spray my friend Mm. and they arrest us both and put us in the back of the police car. And what happened to me is what happens to many people in the criminal justice system. You know, it's explained to you that you should just go ahead and take a plea because there's a risk that you could be convicted of something. And so you you hedge. They were, you were basically consulted to hedge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I obviously didn't think I did anything there. Sure. <laughs> you know, surely not a disorderly right. conduct or resisting arrest, but I, I played out to it, you know. And so it's something that's sealed in my juvenile record, but I freely talk about it because it's really part of what uh, brought me to this point. I always knew I wanted to go to law school. And at that point, I said, you know what, if I can at some point, you know, prevent this from happening in the future, I want to do that. So I'm not out seeking these cases, but I know that, you know, I, I was a 16-year-old college freshman who was there on a full scholarship who... I was in a situation where I was giving criminal charges. You were a college freshman at 16? I was. I was. I graduated high school at 16. I was skipped from the second to the fourth grade. So at the time, what was your major? Were you thinking about law at that time? or? Yeah, I, I was. I, and I, I didn't know what area I wanted to go into. I thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer because you know, that's what you hear is that uh, if you go into where the money is. Exactly. You know, so uh, I thought that that was my path. And then even after that, I thought I was going to be a criminal defense attorney. Uh, it wasn't until I got out of law school and I started practicing personal injury and fighting for victims, people who have been wronged by others that I, you know, got into the field of plaintiffs work, which is what I do now. And eventually my path just, you know, was, was led to these cases. But again, it's about the full life experience that I've had, you know, in dealing with everything. But that experience you had where the judge threw your friend's charges out and then admonished the police officer. Is that something that stuck with you? And, you know, because I hear a lot of people that the justice system doesn't work. And they don't have a lot of faith in it. And so early on, you saw firsthand that, hey, there are opportunities or there are times where it does work. Absolutely. I really respected the judge for what he did because he didn't simply dismiss it. He chewed out the officer for even having us in court on that date. And I also regretted not fighting, you know, obviously, sure. because I, I played out first and my friend was, a, you know, he was an adult at the time. So he actually was in common pleas court and he fought it and it was dismissed. And so I, I played out and I had this on my record for no reason when he fought it. So it showed me respect for the criminal justice system before the you know civil justice system as well. And, and just the fact that if you fight some things, then the truth can come out. And so that did stick with me. So most of the clients that approach you now, are they seeking like civil damages or is it mostly like on the, the actual criminal case? 
Right. So I I do the civil aspect and many people think that I do the criminal aspect because with these police misconduct cases, if they survive, you know, many times they have criminal charges attached to them. And if they've passed away, they've been deemed criminals without a trial. So people actually think that I'm a criminal defense attorney and I'm actually on the civil side, you know, where we're looking to bring claims against, you know, a wrongdoer. And what's interesting is that I have to defend my clients so much that it looks like I'm a defense attorney. I was going to say you, you kind of have to get look like a criminal attorney because you have to do your own you have to do your own investigating right of the alleged crime that occurred. Yep, uh, that, that's across the board. You know, we handle like school sex abuse cases, for example, and. Many times there's a, a criminal prosecution attached to it, but in all my cases, you know, we'll, we'll get our own investigator, we'll talk to witnesses, we'll figure out what happened. That way we can prosecute the claim ourselves. And unfortunately, that has to happen in police cases because we don't feel that the, the investigation that they do is, is thorough for many different reasons. And so, uh, yes, I mean, it, it looks like I'm a criminal defense attorney, but in reality, uh, we're looking at the civil aspect and we're looking to bring claims many times because uh, someone hasn't been held accountable previously. So where were you at in college when this happened? What college did you go to? Uh, UC, Cincinnati. Okay. Yep. So after Cincinnati and then you go to law school where? I went to Capitol and okay. I went straight through. So from Dayton, went to UC undergrad, went to Capitol Law School, all straight through. And so I even now I get clients in Dayton, Cincinnati, Columbus. You know, it's a nice mix of people from all over. And what other firms have you worked at before you and your partner founded the firm you guys have now? Uh, so prior to Walton and Brown, I started off at the Cochran firm founded by John Cochran. Okay. And ironically, he has the same stigma of being a criminal defense attorney, sure. obviously because of OJ. And I think he defended uh, Sean Combs, you know, Puff Daddy, as well as Snoop Dogg. But in reality, he brought a lot of police brutality cases and a lot of civil cases. And mm. so it's a national firm with a lot of resources. And so I was able to get a lot of experience on major cases really, really quickly. When I worked there, he had already passed away. But his partners were still, you know, keeping the firm going as offices across the country. So I was I was exposed to a lot early on and uh, I decided that I wanted to build my own path, my own legacy. And so I actually went out on my own and started the Walton firm prior to Walton and Brown. And I was solo for about two years prior to partnering with Shonda Brown. How do you get in at the Johnny Cochran firm? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> I think it's like any job, you know, it's just about who you know, networking and okay. obviously, you know, showing a, a skill set that fits with the vision of the firm. He was based in L.A.? He was based in L.A. The headquarters is actually in Alabama. Okay. You know, believe it or not. But there's offices all over New York, L.A. So Atlanta. were you in L.A.? Uh, I mean, I've traveled there. You okay. know, I've worked with attorneys in that office. Okay. Again, I've been all over and it, it's all prepared me for this moment, you know, and at the time you don't know what is really preparing you. But I think when the moment happens, you realize, okay, my experience. Experience, the fact that I've, I've handled so much so soon prepared me for the onslaught that was to come. So I've heard that the burden of proof in a civil case is not as high as it is in a criminal case. So when you're on these civil cases, because uh, there seems to basically be a pattern on the criminal side, whereas juries, the judges tend to give the benefit of the doubt to the officers. Not in all cases, but that seems to be the pattern, which is why a lot of families pursue the civil route because they didn't feel that they got justice on the criminal level. One, is that true? Is it easier to make your case uh, on the civil end? And why is that? So 
technically the burden of proof is lower on the civil case. I think part of it is just throughout history, if you're going to take someone's freedom away, then you have to have a, a higher burden. You know, if you're going to get civil damages, then there's a bit less at stake. And so the way to explain it in layman's terms is in a criminal case, you have to have about 95, 99% certainty that, you know, that the crime was committed by the defendant. In a civil case, it's about 51%. You know, it's just more likely than not that this occurred and they were liable. And there's more technical aspects to that as far as how the damages are allocated. But in terms of actually proving it, I wouldn't say it's easier, unfortunately, because typically jurors believe something or they don't, you know? And so officers get a lot of deference. You know, for example, in police misconduct cases, they get a lot of deference. So the plaintiff matters. And so you're dealing with a situation where the jury makeup is important. And if you have a plaintiff or the plaintiff's estate and it's someone who's not necessarily sympathetic mm -hmm. to that juror, then they tend to not believe them. And also witness credibility. I mean, in a lot of my cases, we have witnesses who are not familiar with the, you know, the justice system. They're not sophisticated in a sense. And they're testifying and it's their word against officers who, you know, have had representation that have been trained on what to say and how to say it, you know, and, and so it's still an uphill battle. And so even though the, the burden is lower, mm -hmm. I think it's even harder because, you know, it's not hard to convict a defendant, you know, someone who already has the perception that they've right. done something. But with an officer, you want to believe that, you know, they've done everything right and that you can trust them, that they're here to protect and serve and that the officer had to pull the trigger or had to use force, then that person must have done something to, to cause them to do it. So it's actually harder. I mean, technically the burden is lower, but you're still talking about jurors and just, you know, the human mind. And what you know, this, this is a great question and, and, and I'm glad you brought it up, Scott, because this, this whole arena of how cops are prosecuted and how it seems that it's hard to convince a jury and then you've got the civil side. But then also, you know, there comes a point where the officer is disciplined by his or her department. And the civil side, we recently had a case here where, you know, Officer Zach Rosen stomped a man in handcuffs in the head. And, you know, that created this uproar. And this was after you talked about the onslaught earlier, and we're going to get into the onslaught. But Henry Green, Tyree King, which I know you're, you were with the families the whole step of the way on that. But you have a situation where an arbitrator reinstates Zach Rosen, gives him his back pay, gives him his overtime, basically like nothing ever happened. And then you have a judge who at the civil hearing just bashes the actions of Zach Rosen. And it's hard for the public and the black community in particular to wrestle with that. And I just wonder, like, you know, how do you try to navigate that when you're trying to hold cops accountable when on one hand you have the arbitration system and a third party that acts like a judge and says, you know what, maybe something bad happened, but not worth firing the guy over. In fact, give him all of his pay. And then on the other side, you have a judge who just absolutely admonishes him for his actions. I think it speaks to the system. I think that this case being at the forefront, and I actually represented DeMarco on the on the civil side, and we resolved it with the city of Columbus in the past few weeks here. But it, it exposes the system because the reason that he was able to get his job back was based on the fact that in past instances of similar misconduct, they did not terminate the officer. And so in this instance, you had video, and I, I feel like they had no choice but to seek termination. The interesting part that many people don't know is that his chain of command initially said that it was within policy. And so that's where the issues of mistrust are developed. I mean, his sergeant, his lieutenant, and his commander said that his use of force was within policy. And, and we saw the video. And so it goes to show how this conduct is authorized in the department, you know, just being blunt. 
We saw the video and there's no way that that should have been allowed. And if it wasn't for the deputy chief and Chief Jacobs coming in and saying, no, this was outside of policy, it would have been within policy and there would have been no accountability and officers would have been empowered to do the same thing going forward. And I think it also exposes the fact that this isn't the first time this has happened. It's caught on video, but throughout time, there have been issues of excessive force. There were either no witnesses or the witnesses weren't believed. And so that's how we get to a point where this is allowed because officers feel like they can get away with certain things. And I feel like the vast majority of officers are great officers, are kind people. They're great people. As with any profession, you have some bad apples. And so the issue is that if you have 10% of officers or 5% or even 2% who feel like they can act with impunity in terms of using force or, or even killing someone, that's an issue. And that's where the fear and the mistrust with the community lies. Do you get angry when you work these cases? Do you get angry? Is that part of the feelings you have? I think that if you want to advocate for your client, you have to have some passion behind it. I get angry when I see a a school child molested by a teacher. I do get angry when I see an officer who violates the constitutional rights of a citizen because they've been trusted and empowered to protect and serve. And I feel like, you know, based on many different factors, whether it's, uh, you know, implicit bias or, you know, just the officer's personal belief on how they wanted to act that day, that they're allowed to do certain things. And it's frustrating because I represent people who are essentially voiceless. I represent people who want to speak out and want accountability and they don't get it. And so it's frustrating and you get angry because you want to fight for people and you want people to be able to live a life free of you know, being violated in the way that they, they are. But the stuff that you're dealing with is it's a tough arena to be in. And, you know, there's intimidation. You're taking on a system, as you said. And you've got a wife. You've got two kids now. I, I just wonder, you know, do you go home and sometimes she goes, you know, I think this is too much or expresses concern for your safety. And, and how do you handle those types of situations? I'll be candid. It was uh, it was pretty tough at first. I mean, it's still tough. It's still tough. But I've adjusted early on, you know, when you're being interviewed by the news and your face is out there and again you're taking on this system and you know everybody knows your face and and knows your name there's a a bit of stress there there's a bit of a safety concern you know because while I don't think anybody would do anything you have to be alert and aware and so having again a wife and and young children and you know just never knowing what someone may do you know we got added security on the house you know and and took added uh, safety precautions you know but it, it does impact every area of your life I mean when I'm driving on the street I'm a bit more self-conscious about being pulled over, you know, especially at night when I'm by myself, I'm a bit more, you know, self-conscious of just anything I'm doing, you know, and and I think it really stems from the fact that it's not about people disliking officers. It's not about people not trusting officers. It's never knowing how a situation may unfold. You know, you see nationally the videos that have come out where, you know, Sam DuBose in Cincinnati was was trying to pull off any officer shot him sure. or Minnesota with Flando Castile. Just seeing how, how those interactions played out. So there's some pressure there. And like you said, taking on the system, having my face out there, having my name out there. I'm a bit more cautious, sure. you know, but I'm not backing down because, you know, the work has to be done. Scott, you've said similar things that you think a, an overwhelming majority of officers are good yeah. officers. Yeah, I do. But yet you still worry. I'm black. I, I'm a black man. I, I don't really have a choice. So, I mean, I can think as positively as I want to, but the reality is, is when I'm out, you know, out like I'm fine now, but if I were, you know, walking down the street and maybe I had on my hoodie and some Tim's, you know, I may be perceived as a threat by somebody else. So it doesn't, I don't get the luxury of saying, well, you know, yeah, I, I'm 
you know, I'm good or I'm fine. And that was then. And this is now I'm always like that, no matter where I am, because now we both grew up in Dayton. I have to say, I think I told you this before. I actually never really had a really bad experience, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't happening. It could have just been my personal circumstance that 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 didn't happen. But I also realized it happens to other people and that could change tomorrow. I could get stopped leaving work today. So I just wanted to ask you a quick question. So obviously there's been a lot of talk about how do you reform the criminal justice system so that it's truly equal and fair and balanced. What do you think we need more of? Is it more lawyers of color, more judges? Does it start with the jury? Like, what do you think we need to really get justice reform? And are we talking in general or? I guess if you were talking to a class of kids or students, and they were like, what should we do? What would you suggest that they do? Would you suggest that they become lawyers like yourself or that they become cops or? I think we need better leadership. I think it all starts at the top, I think. And when you say the top, mm-hmm. the top meaning? You mean politicians? I mean, well, politicians, yeah. But, you know, there are certain people that have the power to make changes at a wholesale level. You know, we, we talk about, you know, needing more minority officers. But the reality is that minority officers that are, that are new are, are entry level in a sense. They don't have any influence or any authority, they can have better interactions, you know, with citizens. But when something happens, they can't uh, write a report. You know, they can't they, like they don't have certain powers that people in leadership do. So when I say leadership, I mean county prosecutor. I mean police chief. You know, I mean people who are setting policy and setting practices. For example, when an officer is involved in a police-involved shooting, it goes in front of the grand jury. Nobody understands that process. Nobody understands how it plays out. The reality is that. The county prosecutor has the ability to present that investigation to a grand jury in whatever way they, they see fit. It's a closed door session. The transcripts are sealed and they have that flexibility and that power to hold officers accountable and to prevent future injustice. The reality is that since at least 1980, the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office has never indicted an officer after mm-hmm. a, an officer-involved shooting. And so that, to me, doesn't say that officers have not you know, committed indictable offenses. It, it means that the system of, of power that's in play has shielded these officers and allowed it to continue on. So I wouldn't, you know, I think we need more minority officers. I think we need more minority lawyers and judges and politicians and so on. But the reality is that if certain things change at the top, then I think it, it all sprinkles down and it all plays out much better for everybody. I knew this would go by quick, and it did. There's a lot more to talk about, and we want to have you back on at some point. Definitely. Hopefully nothing happens between now and then that where we have to talk about something new. But the one last thing before we go, though, that I want to do to address is you and I have had conversations about how the media covers these and that oftentimes the first initial story after a police-involved shooting is always quoting things from police and it comes off as fact. And we've talked about, you know, how do you handle that? Because you're not there at the scene at the first night. You're not retained yet. And, you know, how do you handle that? And so I'm wondering if you could kind of critique a little bit how you think the media here in Columbus covers these things and what you would like to see maybe changed or not changed. So um, I've seen a lot of progressive change in how they're covered. You know, from the beginning, I obviously, again, expressed issues with the fact that this narrative was, was put forth as fact. And then it was reported as that from that point on. And I think it's it's just asking more questions, you know, being more critical about the account. 
continuing the coverage as you go forward. You know, and I think uh, in the Henry Green case, there was a lot of continued coverage and I know the family appreciated it, but it also took a push from us, you know, to do that. In a lot of situations, the police put forth a narrative. That's their account. And, you know, it's their right to do that. I've expressed my issues with them doing that to them directly as well. But as more facts come out, you know, as, as things change, it's important to report those because that initial set of facts is what the public believes. It's what potential jurors believe down the line because it's what they've heard. In many of my cases, when I'm, you know, or someone's maybe talking to me about it and passing and they say, yeah, but, you know, didn't they do such and such? And that's that's what they remember. And so. I think it's important to scrutinize the officers a bit more because there are some officers involved in these situations that have many, many use of force complaints. You know, we talk about what the person that was killed or involved in the use of force from, from the citizen perspective. You know, we talk about their criminal records and, and what they may have been doing, mm-hmm. but there's not enough scrutiny on the officers. And I think that, you know, the Rosen situation has drawn more attention to the fact that officers are, you know, involved in multiple encounters, that they're sometimes protected. I think it's important to cover that aspect as well. You know, it's not about putting the citizen on trial. You know, it's about independently reporting the facts. And again, I think that it's improving. But the frustration is just that dead people can't speak, you know, and it's important to try to give them the same respect that we would, you know, um, the officer that is involved. Well, thanks for coming today. Yeah, and, uh, thank you. Thanks so much. It was an enlightening conversation. So appreciate we'll have it. to have you back. Yeah. Um, before you go, if people want to find you, how can they find you? Uh, so my law firm is Walton Brown. Our website is waltonbrownlaw.com. Our phone number is 614-636-3476. And we do all types of plaintiff's work. So, you know, again, you have the police misconduct cases, civil rights cases, personal injury cases, employment discrimination. I do want to point out, you know, just briefly that I do represent officers as well, you know, in discrimination. Yeah, we didn't get into that, but maybe next time we'll yeah, get you into know, it. Yeah, have me back. I'm uh, happy to, you know, come back as much as possible and have these conversations with you guys. But, you know, we represent people who have been wronged and we try to fight for the truth. And I think it's important that we continue to, to do that, you know. So I appreciate you guys having these honest and truthful conversations and I'll continue to do my part. And if folks want to reach out, I'm definitely glad to talk to anybody and and, uh, you know, lend a, an ear and see if I can assist. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So I know everybody's been anxiously waiting for the next trivia round and it's here. So today we got Sean, who's still here. He's going to play with us, Lucas, and of course myself. So let me just refresh you guys on how the game works. Patrick is going to select a question. He's going to read the question. If you know the answer to the question, you say your name and answer the question. If you do not have the correct answer, then then the opportunity moves to the next player. If none of us have the correct answer, then we'll just move on to the next question. The first question says, what is the only U.S. state without a rectangular flag? Scott, I'm going to say it's Puerto Rico. No. Oh. He said is Puerto it? Rico, and I'll tell you that's not right. Is it, you already said it, that. Is it thank not Ohio? Yeah, it's, eh, eh. No, it's Where's Ohio. the buzzer? Yeah, it's Ohio. Right, okay, thank you. All right. But the next one says, what famous building would you find located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Scott. Lucas. Scott, you were first. The White House. Yes. That was easy. The score is now 1-1. One, one. The two S's from Dayton are <laughs> on yep. the board. Yes, they are. Come okay. on, Lucas. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. <laughs> The next question says, which U.S. president made the first presidential radio broadcast? Scott. Lucas. Go ahead. No. Was it Truman? No. Sean. Okay. FDR. No. Lucas. Yes. Woodrow Wilson. No. (laughs) Who was it? Calvin Coolidge. What? Ooh. Never got that. I would have never gotten that. (laughs) 
This may be a good one. It says, Atlantic City is a popular entertainment destination located in which U.S. state? Lucas. Scott. Yeah. New Jersey. Yes. So we are now tied, all three of us. Yep. This is the last question, right? Sure. Yeah. This says, Sequoia National Park is located in which U.S. state? Scott. It's in California. Yeah. The last and final one says, which major American airline is named after a Greek letter? Scott. <laughs> I like how Scott answers Deduct- and doesn't know. Point. Can you repeat the question? No, nope. uh, no, nope. no. There's no rule against that. No, you don't. Have, you're you're done. Do you have an answer? Uh, okay, Scott? I've got it. I'm, I'm just okay. waiting here. Go ahead, Sean. Delta. Yes. Oh! Did you know that? That's good. Yeah, <laughs> that was good. It's two to two. That was good. Yeah, and, we're tied. Uh, this one says, "What do the letters zip stand for in the United States Postal Code?" Scott. Zone. <laughs> I love how he just Zone. says his name and then tries to guess. <laughs> Come up with the answer. Zone something. It's not zone, zone, zone. I don't know. I don't know. Pass. Deduct a point. Wait, do you have a guess, Lucas? No, but I'm fascinated to know. Yeah, what is it? Zone improvement plan. Do you watch Jeopardy every night or something? No. You're intense about this. We ready? Yeah. Which of the Great Lakes does not share a border with Canada? Scott. Lucas. Lake Michigan. Yes. So, as usual, thank you for joining us for the other side. And don't forget to check out dispatch.com backslash the other side for more episodes of our podcast. You can also find us on iTunes now. So it's very exciting. And you can also email us at lsullivan at dispatch.com if you want to reach out to Lucas. And you can email me at skirk. That's Kirk at Dispatch.com if you want to drop me a note. So in the meantime, don't forget to try to see things from the other side. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.